0: Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here with us today. Season two is afoot and we are starting another journey into human nature. This time we're looking at the role passages play in the lives of my guests, the initiations, the transformations, the accidental, the intentful. Hold tight and listen in because we are about to journey into another incredible and beautiful series of conversations. Let's get into it. Here we go. Here we go. David Buss, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really happy to have you on the show today.
1: Well, wow. hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great here to be here talking to you.
0: Usually I start shows... Not really getting into people's backgrounds, because I think their personal stories speak for themselves, but in this case, because your professional life is such an important part of why I wanted to have you on the show. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So you are a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, been in the field of evolutionary psychology for four decades. You've written several books, one of which influenced me and was the reason I wanted to invite you on the show today, The Evolution of Desire, which you have at least two editions of, yeah? Yeah.
1: Yes, that was, my, that was my first first book, but I also had the privilege and honor of revising it uh, a few years ago, so it's out in a new paperback, paperback edition. And it was really an interesting experience. We can get into that. Uh, but anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt your introduction. Here.
0: No, that's fine. I love it. And then you have a, another book called The Evolutionary, Evolutionary Psychology, The New Science of Mind, which you have six editions of, so obviously you've been working at that one for a while.
1: Yes, that's a, that's a textbook. Uh, and it was the first textbook in the field of evolutionary psychology. And I'm happy to report that today it's the most widely used textbook in evolutionary psychology, both here in Canada, uh, the UK, and actually throughout throughout Europe. And it's been translated into half a dozen languages. So uh, that's been a fun thing to work on.
0: And another recent addition to your several books is one published this year, Men Behaving Badly. The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's my most recent book. And uh, it's uh, the the title, it it deals with sexual conflict, which uh, is perhaps a topic we can get into. But um, the topic of conflict between the sexes is something that has obsessed me for also a little over three decades. I published my first article on it in 1989, believe it or not. So this new book really is a overarching synthesis of all the different ways in which men and women get into conflict and the theoretical framework that explains why and in which domains they get into conflict. Um, And So I was very happy to finally complete that. That's been on my list of books to write for a long time and I'm very, very happy with it and and it's been received very well.
0: Congratulations. I know that's a huge effort and it's uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that book because your chapter on sexual conflict and the evolution of desire is very provocative and I do want to get into that topic. But furthermore, I want to let the listeners know that you run the bus lab of evolutionary psychology and that you've been, you know, as you kind of alluded to been working on studying strategies of human mating on mate selection, the different tactics people employ for mate attraction Issues such as infidelity, jealousy, emotions, mate poaching, mate swapping, uh, lust, love. Um, you've also taught at Berkeley, at Harvard, and University of Michigan. Also, you you know you've explored some really powerful parts to the mating drives and the different ways that we work deep down inside when we're you know falling in love or getting into an argument with our partner or potential partner or all the things that can go along with that. So as someone who's spent their life looking at how humans work, I think you're in, in a very research way. I think you're a, a wonderful guest. I'm really glad you're on the show. And so I wanted to start with really the question, how did you get interested in evolutionary psychology and this, the psychology of human sexual mating? The,
1: the, the larger issue of evolutionary psychology uh, there was no such thing as evolutionary psychology when I got into the field. So I got my PhD at Berkeley in personality psychology um, because I believed that personality psychology was the field, the subfield within psychology that dealt with the grand theories of human nature. And that's what I was interested in is, is what makes people tick? What are what are the fundamental features of our human nature? What I realized uh, when I started graduate school is, I mean, I, I, TA for courses in personality psychology, and there were all these grand theories, you know, Freud and Jung and Kelly and Adler and Maslow and so forth. What I realized is that all intuitively had elements that resonated, uh, but that none of them were really grounded in a foundational set of principles on which you could build a true science of human nature. Um, and that's really what led me to evolutionary theory, not evolutionary psychology because it didn't exist. But, you know, what what causal process created whatever nature it is that we have? So that was sort of my, uh, you know, and evolutionary theory was the first theory that totally captivated me intellectually. I encountered it as an undergraduate in a geology class. And it just blew my mind that there existed theories to explain the origins and evolution of things. I mean, I maybe most people realize that a lot earlier than I did, but uh, I was just kind of intellectually blown away by that. Uh, and then applying it to humans, um, that just wasn't done uh, back then. and um, and and then on the mating front, I mean mating is a topic that uh, obsessed me and seemed to obsess obsess all my friends. You look at, you know, what's in tabloids, it's all about mating, who's cheating on whom, who's breaking up with whom, who's getting together with whom. Uh, all the great literature, uh, you know, from, I don't know, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the great plays, great movies, uh, uh songs you know love songs breakup songs sex songs infidelity songs country and western songs that deal with you know my baby don't love me no more or whatever yeah i was and thinking so, about my <laughs> wife
0: likes to sing that bruce springsteen song um i think it's titled baby i'm on fire i'm on fire It's a hey little girl okay. is your daddy home you know, and and it really is a, a kind of a, a mating what do you call that when someone steals or tries to Mate poaching. Mate poaching. Yeah, it's a mate poaching yeah. song, and so, so here you are, and you're starting to discover this evolutionary theory, and there's all these, this energy and human life around what's going on with mating, and it starts, so it starts to come together and appeal for you in some way.
1: Yeah, and and quick story on that. So, so I got my PhD at Berkeley, uh, and then uh, I got offered a job at Harvard, and so I went to Harvard as an assistant professor. And one of the benefits of being there at Harvard is that basically you're, you're, everybody leaves you alone. So you can do whatever you want to do. So I didn't have mentors looking over my shoulder, you know, asking me to do things. I could do exactly what I wanted. And so I started studying married couples. Uh, and I was interested for a variety of reasons. But as I was designing these studies of married couples, I realized that I could test some evolutionary predictions in the course of carrying out these studies in addition to doing my normal personality research. And so that's, that was really the first time I included uh, a measure of uh, preferences in mate selection. And lo and behold. Do you I remember
0: like, what you were asking those married couples that you was like your first seed idea that you were testing? They're like, Hey, is there yeah, yeah. I mean, bas-
1: yeah, absolutely. So basically uh, was testing a few predictions that had been made by Robert Trivers, a famous evolutionary biologist, uh, George C. Williams in his book Sex and Evolution, another evolutionary biologist, and then Don Simons, who had a brilliant, really I think the best book at the time uh, called The Evolution of Human Sexuality by Don Simons that also contained predictions. And the interesting issue is that there were predictions but almost no empirical data. And if you get a PhD at Berkeley, you know one of the things you know is you—they you, pound empiricism. Nothing counts except data. You know you have to have results, and so and so I took that to heart, and so I've always been interested in kind of toggling back and forth between theory and data, theory and empirical research. And so, uh, so what happened was, so these were things I was testing: sex differences in mate preferences. You know, is it the case that you know men prioritize youth? and physical attractiveness, which were hypothesized to be cues to fertility. Um, is it the case that women, more than men, prioritize uh, cues to resource acquisition? And you know, not only, so things like a man's ambition, his social status, his uh, drive, does he have goals? You know, uh, is, he, is he intelligent? And so I found these results that, that actually confirm the predictions from these evolutionary hypotheses, but these, this was a sample of newlywed uh, married couples in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or the Boston area. Uh, and I realized, well, no one's gonna believe these, um, that these are evolutionarily based, based on a sample from Massachusetts. Uh, so I said, well, I have to see whether these are true universally. And that's what launched my 37 culture study, where over the course of five years, I established research collaborators in 37 different cultures. and. Um, uh, and so I could test, are these things universal? Are these sex differences universal or are they local? And one of the interesting things about that is just quick anecdote on that, I realize I'm rambling a little but is that I went around before I did the international mate selection study and I asked different professors to make predictions. What do you think I will find? Will these sex differences Be local to America? Will they be local to capitalist cultures or Western cultures or or what are now called weird cultures? Or would they exist in the Zulu tribe in South Africa, in in, in China, in Japan, uh, Korea, et cetera? Because almost almost to a professor, they predicted no, these are just local cultural variations. They, They will not occur universally. And the only people who predicted that they would were people like Don Simons, who had had written about precisely that in his 1979 book. And so, lo and behold, I do the 37 culture study. Uh, The results come out. Yes, these are universal sex differences. And one of the interesting reactions is some of the people who said, oh, no, these are the local things said, oh, I could have predicted that, you know, but before (laughs) the data come in, and it's one of these, we, we know that people, uh, Tversky and Kahneman and others have discovered the hindsight bias. Everything is, uh, oh yeah, I, I, could have, I could have told you that in hindsight. I mean, it even goes back to Darwin's theory of evolution by selection. Uh, Thomas Huxley is reported to have said, how stupid of me not to have thought of that before. But, you know, it's one of these <laughs> things where even Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection seems obvious in retrospect, but it, it, it's astonishing that it wasn't until 19, I mean, 1859. That it actually was discovered. That's relatively late in the history of science. You think of like, you know, Galileo and Copernicus were making monumental discoveries about the universe hundreds of years before that. Why did it take so long for scientists to discover? That's such a great question and
0: kind of telling in a way, isn't it? Kind of telling that we're kind of the last to know?
1: Well, I think what it, it, it is telling, and to me, what it tells us, what it tells me is that the theory is not intuitively obvious. You know, that is, we think um, humans are designed to think in, in what's sometimes called billiard ball causality. You know, you, you hit the ball and you see the force and it hits the other ball and, and propels uh, the other ball. Uh, that kind of billiard ball causality is not the causality that's captured by natural selection. It's one of these interesting things where what occurs after the act is an explanation for why the mechanism exists to begin with. So in other words, at mechanisms that have the consequence of increasing their reproductive success or the reproductive success of their bearers, um, those consequences select for that mechanism. And so, and so it's a kind of, um, it's an odd, I mean it's very parallel to Skinner's theory of operant conditioning where which is also discovered relatively late in the game, that what occurs after the action is part of the causal explanation for why something evolved to begin with.
0: All right, so if I can take us back to this 37 culture study about mate preferences, some people, or most people, it sounds like predicted, no, this is a very provincial kind of situation based in Massachusetts, but what did you find? I mean, what's the substance of evolution influencing how men, women, in general, approach the dance of mating?
1: Okay. Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> so I'll, 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 uh, I'll dip into it and then you can guide me to what aspects uh, interest you the most. But so just going from first principles The framework of evolutionary psychology is, offers a meta theory for when we expect to see sex differences and when we expect to see similarities between the sexes. That that is, you know, uh, so, uh, and basically the, the meta theory is that when men and women have faced similar adaptive problems over the long course of human evolutionary history, they will have similar psychology and similar biology and similar physiology. So in other words, as a quick example, um, uh, food preferences. Food preferences are largely similar in in men and women because both sexes have faced the problem of, you know, you got to get fuel for the machine, you have to eat. Um, uh, Where do the sexes differ? Well, they differ in their food preferences when women face a different adaptive problem that no man has ever faced, namely she gets pregnant. Uh, Here she faces the problem of eating for two, and also avoiding ingesting foods that contain teratogenic substances—that is, those that are harmful to the to, to the fetus—and uh, and so then all of a sudden women develop these unusual what what seem to some to be unusual taste preferences, but they have a very specific adaptive logic, and they involve avoiding ingesting things that that are bad for the fetus. So, well, like so the disgust
0: response, how women are more likely during. Pregnancy to be sensitive to certain smells and find things more disgusting than yeah. what you're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even things like broccoli, you know, which you think, well, that's a health food, but it contains minute substances that are uh, not harmful to an adult, but are harmful to a fetus if they pass the placental barrier. Uh, so what we expect is to see sex differences only in domains where men and women have faced different adaptive problems. But as it turns out, Almost all those domains center on mating and sexuality, okay? Some might say one exception to that might be aggression, so physical aggression. There's huge sex differences there as well, but that's closely related to mating, you know, which gets us into the theory of sexual selection. So, this is why my 37 culture study was so uh, monumental, and in fact, to this day is my most highly cited study. It has almost 6,000 citations in Google Scholar which is which is like in the top you know 1 point you know 0.1 of 1% 99% plus um, and that is that everybody assumed that men and women were fundamentally identical in their psychology except by virtue of the parents or culture or you know parents giving girls barbie dolls and boys toy guns and trucks and so forth so whatever sex differences you saw were believed to be the result of basically socialization or culture, and the notion that there might be evolved sex differences in our as- aspects of our psychology was totally revolutionary. And a- as I mentioned, people had speculated about it or hypothesized about it, but no one had any empirical data on it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the thirty-seven culture study was so important, is saying, hey, look, um, you know, th- these are universal; these aren't products of parents or capitalism or culture, uh, they, are universal sex differences that correspond precisely to the domains where the sexes have faced different adaptive problems, you know? And so it kind of opened up the door to really, you know, both the mating research and mating had been regarded as a um, very peripheral area within psychology, even social psychology viewed it as, uh, you know, a kind of peripheral area people were interested in. I don't know, stereotypes and...
0: Did you just fall into it or did you have a hunch?
1: Oh, no. I mean, I didn't fall into it. It, was, it gets back to that quest to discover a, a non-arbitrary scientific foundation for a theory of human nature. You know, and, and if you don't understand the causal processes that gave rise to that nature, you can't understand what that nature is. Uh, And and that's what evolutionary psychology does. And I happen to specialize in human mating strategies, but there are many other areas of evolutionary psychology that other people do. Evolution of cooperation, evolution of morality, evolution of uh, warfare. There are many other domains that I talk about in my uh, textbook evolutionary psychology. So what are the
0: different adaptive challenges each sex has that has caused them or has you know left us with this differential or dimorphic maybe in a way mating strategy tendencies or preferences
1: that's a great question and these basically stem from sex differences in our reproductive biology so forget about psychology for the moment what does our reproductive biology tell us well first of all we know that uh, women but not men get pregnant okay that's a profound adaptive problem right there where women invest, it's obligatory, part of reproductive biology, they have to invest that nine months of pregnancy to produce a single child. Men, in contrast, can have a, produce a single child with one act of sex and no investment. Of course, fortunately, most men do more than the minimum and and often do invest
0: i want Uh, to bring up a point here if it's okay and and, and first of all there's an episode where i do discuss similar ideas around parental investment theory with robert trivers who wrote the paper on parental investment theory so definitely check out that show but also this idea that i learned from watching uh, a robert sapolsky lecture around tournament species and pair bonding species And I don't know if it's relevant here, but my understanding is there's a differential in different approaches to how mating strategies work and that humans are partially dimorphic, but not as much as most tournament uh, species, but yet we're not as similar as pair bonding. And so we're kind of caught in this middle world. Am I understanding that right? Is it relevant to this point?
1: Okay, yeah, uh, it, 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 it is somewhat relevant to this point. So I've actually, uh, I was on a, a panel with Robert Sapolsky where we talk about precisely this issue. And and uh, this is one of these areas where he and I agree on 99% of everything, but um, but I disagreed with his term. He used the term confused. The humans are a confused species because we're neither the tournament or the pair bond. Okay, I think that's a, a, not the right way to characterize it. The way I characterize it is that humans have evolved a menu of mating strategies that includes pair bonding, absolutely, and that's, and that's very rare in the mammalian world. Three to 5% of all mammals have that. But we also have short-term mating, casual sex hookups. We have infidelity. So while we're pair bonded with one person, a certain percentage, non-trivial percentage, have sex with other people outside the pair bond. We engage in serial mating, uh where we mate with one person, break up, mate with another person. We also engage in polyandrous mating uh one male multiple females and very occasionally uh I'm sorry that's uh, uh, polyandrous is one female multiple males uh polygynous mating is much more common so polyandrous mating one female multiple males is very very rare less than one percent of cultures uh polygynous mating one male multiple females is uh is much more prevalent around 83 percent of cultures in the cross-cultural sample so so i think that on the issue of sexual dimorphism it depends on which aspect of dimorphism you talk about so so yes if you look at let's say elephant seals males are four times the size of females and they have a, a mating system known as harem polygyny where basically the the alpha male they get into these physical contests and the alpha male basically gets access to a harem, although there are mate poachers, getting back to the mate poaching issue, um, even there. But but back to the fundamentally different adaptive problems. So you have, you have pregnancy, uh, you also have the fact that fertilization occurs internally within the woman, not within the man. This creates an adaptive problem that men face that no woman has ever pe- faced, and that is the problem of paternity uncertainty. So some cultures use the phrase "mama's baby, papa's maybe" to kind of capture this. Men can never be sure that they are the fathers of their of their children. Women always have one hundred percent certainty of maternity. Uh, and so uh, and so these are, these are some examples of the fundamentally different adaptive problems that men and women have faced. And to an evolutionist, it would be absolutely astonishing and defy all logic if the sexes had not evolved sex differentiated psychological behavioral and strategic differences to correspond to those Uh, and in fact they have and 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 so we know that even both sexes are equally jealous for example but men's jealousy focuses more intensely on the sexual aspects of an infidelity.
0: One of my questions, I thought, would be really helpful to validate the preferences and the differences. There is that sexual jealousy. It validates the way in which men feel jealous and what they feel jealous about, and what women feel jealous in relationship about. Actually, tells the story in a way of what our preferences are and why.
1: Right. Right. Ex- exactly. And 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 um, I mean, when I started studying jealousy, and this is another you know, hot uh, body of research that had a high impact in in my lifetime, my career, uh, is that when I first started studying jealousy, the common belief was that jealousy is one of, first of all, it wasn't a basic emotion. It was viewed as a kind of a blend of emotions. I even talked to uh, great uh, emotion researchers like Paul Ekman, and they said, what, where's jealousy in your framework of basic emotions? I said, well, it's not really a basic emotion. Uh, but to an uh, and it was regarded by the mainstream of psychology as a kind of sign of immaturity or pathology or, or sometimes in the clinical realm, delusion. But uh, from an evolutionary perspective, what constitutes a basic emotion, it does not correspond to whether it has a, as a facial expression, although some emotions do. It corresponds to did this emotion evolve to serve a specific function? And in the case of jealousy, the answer is yes. And that's what this research found, is that uh, for men, one of the functions is to guard against paternity uncertainty. Okay, that is, in jealousy motivates mate guarding, it motivates fending off mate poachers. Uh, for women, jealousy serves an equally important function, but not the same function. And that is preserving the investment of her primary partner, uh, rather than letting that investment get diverted to a rival woman and her children, and so that's why it, women's jealousy tends to focus intensely on emotional infidelity. You know, so like one one example is this former student of mine uh, did this great study. Barry Cooley is his name. Uh, did this great study of uh, where he analyzed the uh, the videos of this of this. Uh, dot, uh, it was a reality show called Cheaters. And, uh, and w- what men, so when men discover that their partner might be having an affair, the first thing they want to know is, did you have sex with him? Or I don't know if you're allowed to say this. I know, sex. talk, it, talk did, it out. Did, did you fuck him? That's what they want to know. Uh, women, when they find out or suspect their partner's having an affair, their first question, their first verbal interrogation is, do you love her? And so there are these sex differences, even in reactions to the suspicion or discovery of a partner's infidelity that, again, correspond precisely to the sex differences and adaptive problems that the men and women have faced.
0: What women tend to look for unconsciously (laughs) and men unconsciously and consciously ties back to our reproductive biology. And so in some ways, the things we want are the things that we need at some level.
1: Well, the way I would put it is, well, let me mention one more and then, and then circle back to your question here. One more uh, fundamental sex difference has to do with sex differences in fertility curves over the lifespan. So basically, women, um, you know, they hit puberty, they're, you know, right after puberty, they're, they're not maximally fertile, but a few years later, they become fertile, and women are basically peak in fertility in their mid-20s. Um, men, in contrast, and then it drops after 30, it starts to drop, and it drops pretty sharply from age 30 to 40. Men a- until it hits zero at menopause. Men can reproduce throughout their entire lifetime. So men's fertility gradually declines, but it's gradual. So one example is Clint Eastwood. Um, I think in his 70s had a, had a child through his ex. I don't know how many wives he he's had, but ha- had a child. And so men can sometimes do reproduce throughout their lifespan. So what this meant is if you combine that fact with the sex difference in parental investment that the sexists have to do, in, do to produce a single child, what you come up with is that for men, a major constraint on their reproductive success has always been sexual access to fertile women. In contrast, for women, access to fertile men has never been a problem. So and some use the phrase sperm are cheap, eggs are expensive to uh, capture that. That is, there's never been a shortage of men willing to contribute sperm to a woman if the costs and risks are, are, are low enough. Uh, and so, uh, but for men, access to fertile women has been a huge constraint on their reproductive success and so men have evolved this psychology. To prioritize things like a relative youth, which is acute to fertility, and physical aspects of physical appearance, such as clear skin, full skin, uh, full full lips, uh, 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 unwrinkled, lustrous hair, um, unwrinkled unwrinkled skin, symmetrical features, Signs uh, signs of health and signs of youth. And so that's another. A major shift in my lifetime is overturning this, uh, what I was taught as an undergraduate, which was that beauty is all in the arbitrary eyes of the beholder. Uh, and it turns out that there are some standards of beauty that do vary substantially, but we now know that some of the core aspects of physical attractiveness have an evolutionary basis in the case of women cues to fertility
0: when we look under the hood and we start seeing some of these motivations of how we approach relationship or what we find sexually interesting or attractive it's a little uncomfortable i think and i think there's i would imagine you've gotten pushback when you start talking or when you write or as you research and we start looking at the issue of mate value and how we can find what how hmm. how humans and how men and how women find value in each other and what they value in each other from, from resources to beauty and, and the dance and the conflict and the way those things can cooperate in the way that can be difficult. And let me just add in a little personal story here because I think it might be relevant and helpful, which is this. When I first read your book three years ago, and I've recently reread it, what really stood out for me was I saw what my mating strategy was. And my, <laughs> Which is what and my mating strategy was to be a good guy. Yeah. It wasn't about resource development. I never sought to make a lot of money. I never sought to have a high standing power and, and be able to swagger around my mating strategy. And maybe it's just my nature, but I started to see like, Oh, I thought if I was an emotionally connected, sincere man, that that would be adequate and it is but on its own i realized that oh there's a kind of deficit that i have in terms of my portfolio of what i bring to the table right it was painful it was it was beautiful to see it but and i was never conscious i never well actually it was kind of conscious and i want to bring this in too which i think my dad was somewhat the opposite my father was a man who had ambition wanted to lead companies And wasn't that emotionally present or available enough as I saw it. And so I think in a way I was like, I'm just going to do the opposite of what my dad did. So I want to kind of bring in this very personal part of my own life story for you to kind of work with and talk about and help fill out this, these ideas around how we go through mating and how we make our choices and the strategies we take.
1: Well, that's a great, thank you for sharing that, that personal, uh, personal story. A couple thoughts on it, okay, one is that uh, although women do more than men prioritize resources and resource acquisition and drive and status, they also prioritize, and this is a thing found in my 37 culture study, they also prioritize kindness. Is the man kind? Is he understanding? Is he emotionally stable? Will he be there through thick and thin, uh, through the stresses and strains and ups and downs of life? And so the qualities of being a nice guy is actually a positive in long-term mating. And this is where we have to distinguish between long-term and short-term mating because what women want differs in that context.
0: Can you say a little bit more about those two contexts of what women want between short-term mating and long-term mating?
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah, so um, being a nice guy uh, is not going to help you in short-term mating. So women, uh, unfortunately, perhaps are attracted in short-term mating to the high-status, strutting, arrogant, confident, perhaps overly confident uh, guys who uh, who also might be extravagant with their resources and high in risk-taking. Uh, some call them assholes, uh, but but so for example, I mean, a prime case would be something like I don't know a, a famous rock star. You, know, you look at some of these rock stars, and they have thousands and thousands of groupies who are willing to have sex with them in the short term, uh, and they're willing to have sex with the groupies. Some of them, uh, if you looked at these guys, you know, are, are they nice guys? Are they emotionally stable? You know, do they have these other qualities that are associated with the good long term mates? The answer is, in most cases, no. But they have qualities that women desire in short-term mates. So, how does that solve? Let
0: me ask you, challenge that question. How does, uh, say, you know, a rock star, or a famous athlete, or someone with great political power, how does that solve the dilemma of what a a female needs in a reproductive biology if she needs investment and resources?
1: The two things that it boils down to are uh, good resources and good genes. And so a, a man who has high status um, and in part status is determined by the attention structure. That is those who are highest in status are those to whom the most people pay the most attention. Uh, and so status historically has brought a wealth of benefits to a woman and her offspring. So uh, if you, we evolved in small group living where uh, you know the everyone, uh, perhaps 150 to 200 people, the high status man uh, we know commands more resources. The, uh, people in the group give better healthcare to the children of high status men. And so in a, in a weird way, we live in this weird transplanted modern environment, which is in some ways discrepant from or mismatch from our ancestral environment. But women are using those cues, uh, the attention structure, they also use the cue uh, of other women. Are other women attracted to, uh, to this guy? In groupies, of course, you get, you get them by the thousand. Because in, in essence, that's, you know, they've done the screening for you. You know, other women it provide information about is this guy uh, desirable? And then, of course, there's uh, to the degree that some of these qualities have a genetic component, and we know that some of them do behavioral genetic studies show moderate heritability to things like ambition and status and accomplishment and mm-hmm. you know and even income uh, that that women are are also choosing genes that then uh, their children have and so they have in the in the words of evolutionary biology they can bear sexy sons uh, that is sons who are themselves, sexy. And so women can't increase their direct reproductive success by mating with these guys, uh, but they can increase their reproductive success through their sexy sons. Now, of course, they don't think about this. No, nobody's get back to your question about, uh, are these things conscious or unconscious? No, they're, they're, they're largely unconscious, but we, we're just attracted to certain people and not attracted to other people. Now, I would like to just mention, uh, one thing you asked this question about value and the people's uncomfortability around value. Yeah, when we reduce others.
0: the conversation and we really focus on reproductive value and how that feels and how that's a difficult thing, but it, it also is something that's actually at work at the same time in the unconscious you know, mechanics of our thinking.
1: Yes. So, so, well, reproductive value is only one component of mate value. But here's the thing. So we, we live in Western cultures uh, with the, uh, a very powerful and very worthy belief in equality. But equality has two different meanings. One is uh, equal in, uh, equal under the, the law, equal in terms of the freedoms that are granted, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of uh, free assembly and so forth. Uh, so they're all uh, equal in the eyes of the law. But that doesn't mean that they're equal in the sense that they're equally valued. And perhaps it is an uncomfortable truth. But the fact is we value different people in different ways, just like we value different foods in different ways. We, we could graze off some of the things we could pick up on the side of the road and get some calories for our body. But those aren't, we don't value those as much as, I don't know, um, fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, or if you're a carnivore. Um, a, a prime cut of uh, steak or, or chicken or, or fish. So, um, but th- yeah, it makes people uncomfortable, but everybody knows that we do value people differently. You know, some people are hot, some people are not, to use a, a common uh, aphorism. But, um, uh, but the fact is that we do, and evolutionary, the evolutionary perspective sheds light on why we do. That is, it's more beneficial from a woman's perspective to choose a man who has the ability and willingness to contribute resources to her and who's gonna stick around, who's gonna pair bond with her, uh, who's gonna be invested in her children. And it's been reproductively beneficial for men to choose women who are high in fertility, you know, and also who will be good moms and so forth. Uh, But the fertility its like job one. If you were in business, you call it job one. And that's you have to pick a fertile mate. Uh, Anyone in our evolutionary past who failed to pick a fertile mate failed to become an ancestor. We value things, even things that are shared by the sexes, good health, Uh, physical fitness. Both sexes equally want partners who are healthy and physically fit. Well, uh, so we view the out of shape person who is unhealthy and disease ridden Uh, and has open sores and lesions, we don't value them as much as someone who uh, is brimming with good health and physical fitness. Uh, But these, uh, uh, maybe it's unpleasant um, or uncomfortable that we value people differently, but everybody knows that we do. This isn't some hidden secret. Um, I mean, they're even in the mating domain, we have these informal scales. uh, This person's a 10, this person's an eight, this person's a six, this person's a two. We have these informal metrics, and all cultures have these. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as uncomfortable as it is, it's a fact of life. Uh, so, I think better to deal with it. And for those who want to improve or into self improvement, as many humans are, there are many aspects of your mate value that you can improve.
0: The main reason I wanted to have you on in this episode is because I think that the dance of mating. And finding a mate, or struggling with a mate, or not being able to find a mate, or all the different, God, emotions and stories and the, the personal celebrations, the and the conflicts that we all go through as most of us go through as adults is really centered around this particular aspect yeah. of our lives. You know, I'm think I think about Greece, and I think about. The grease and whether, you know, Danny's going to be like the nice loyal guy or he's going to be the tough guy with his friends. And I think about <laughs> Romeo and Juliet and you're in a time of conflict. It's funny that you brought Romeo and Juliet up earlier because... Romeo and Juliet, they're trying to mate, but they're mating in a place where there's revenge cycles going on and there's social conflicts going on. And so it's really unsafe to to come of age and mate and fall in love in a time when the world is or their local world was so disastrous. Right. So it's such a critical passage in our lives and it shapes a large part—it shaped a large part of my life story of how my marriage is going, how I found my marriage, how, when when we're doing well, when we're not doing well, and when people that I know get divorced and how profound that is a change in their lives. And in to peel back the the stories of it and to look under the hood and to find there's you know evolutionary psychologists like you that have language for things like mate swapping, mate switching. switching. Uh, yeah, swapping, so is yeah. <laughs> yeah, swapping, swapping
1: is somewhat different. Yeah, swapping is... Is a swinging and polyamory and things like that. Right, and I'm in the Bay
0: Area, and there's like lots of people, (laughs) Ah, people, cultures who are not not some who are doing the polyamory thing, and then there's you know, and then there's but but that's different
1: from mate mate switching. Mate switching is more like a serial mating strategy.
0: And there's language for all this. There's thoughts for this, and there's descriptions, and there's there's a way in which we can look at the you know the economy of it, and the ecology of it, and the biology of it, and start to say ah. Right. These things are at play in me. And so one of my passions and the reason I like to study human nature and go, okay, so rather than be at odds with it, you know, like, ah, I shouldn't feel this way. Or I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be comparing in my mind of who's hot or who's not, or I shouldn't be fair to someone who I might have a a bias against, or I might need to understand my biases is how do we become, as you said, self-improved or more, or more, um, effective and more in a clear conscious relationship with our biology and our psychology. So when you offer the opportunity to say, you know, what can we do about it and how can we get better at the process of mating and, and understanding that, what, what would you say to people? What have you figured out after, you know, 40 years of, of looking at this stuff?
1: Well, first thing I would say is um, uh, those who are interested in self-improvement should read my book, the evolution of desire. Strategies of human mating because uh, that contains all the information uh, or most of the information that you need to know. And part of that information is you have to understand what the uh, person you're trying to attract desires. You have to understand the desires and preferences of the in if you're heterosexual, of the opposite sex. Uh, and because successful tactics of mate attraction involve embodying. Those desires better than better than rivals. So there are lots of things people can do. So one here, here, and it differs somewhat depending on whether you're a man or a woman. Okay, when it comes to fitness, as I mentioned, but physical fitness, both sexes can improve on that. You know, don't don't be a couch potato. Don't spend ten hours of your day behind a computer screen. Uh, make sure you get you get ten thousand steps in. Get your exercise. Get Get physically toned. Uh, uh, Here's a sex difference: Uh, our our olfactory ability. Most people don't know this, but women have a better sense of smell than men do. They have more acute olfactory abilities, and so sometimes guys, their hygiene sucks. You know, from a woman's perspective, they they don't smell anything. But a woman, like, uh, and and that's the biggest turnoff. Uh, The guy can have all the other qualities that a woman wants but if he doesn't smell right, that's a big sexual turnoff for her. Uh, And so uh, attention to personal hygiene uh, is also important, particularly for men. Women are naturally, uh, say naturally uh, are are better at that, Uh, just uh, naturally, I guess. Um, There are things like um, uh, women value things like a man's status, his ambition, his goals, his drive you know and so guys who like they're they're in existential crisis oh i don't know what i want to do with my life i don't know where i want to be i don't know what job i want to have uh those are not attractive you know women desire guys who have clear goals and who are going somewhere that is they look at future trajectory not necessarily where this guy is right now so i mean let's say you're an undergraduate well most undergraduates they don't have resources or anything but they have future trajectories. And women look at, is this guy going places? Is he on an upward trajectory uh, or a downward trajectory, or is he not going anywhere? Uh, and so you can, you can. those are all modifiable things. Uh,
0: the takeaway I, I took um, from rereading your book uh, is that mate value is not a noun, it's a verb. It's an ongoing thing. Yes. <laughs> and all the research it, around... The shift in marital relationships from, you know, the courtship phase when everybody is putting energy in and contributing and investing in whatever their particular gifts are, attributes or, or contributions to the relationship is to stay vital in courtship. Like, you know, courtship is not something that needs to end and that there's something about the dance of. When we do embody, you know, whatever our gender identity is or sex identity is, and when we when when we embody those vital human energies, that that is somehow naturally appealing to the complementary sex partner or mate, and that that's something that needs to continually be refreshed and nourished and looked after as if it's a living thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think there are at least two aspects to your point there. Okay, one is that mate value is never a static entity as our mate value changes over time uh with our good fortunes and our bad fortunes so you could have like a a woman could become a famous actress she could be like Scarlett Johansson all of a sudden her mate value skyrockets or se- same for a man um or you could um have a debilitating accident or injury your mate value goes down you could get fired from your job you could um acquire some debilitating disease. So, so one is that mate value, one aspect of your point is that mate value is never static. Uh, And so uh, you can't just say, okay, now I've succeeded in attracting the woman of my dreams. Now I can let everything else go. Sometimes people do that. But this, this is the second aspect of your point is to sustain successful long-term relationships. What do you need to do? And among other things, you need to maintain your mate value, including all those things that you, as you mentioned, you did in the courtship process. You can't just say, okay, I've attracted this person. Now I can forget about her or him and go on with my life and solve other adaptive problems. Now, part of the reason this is an issue is that we have finite time, energy, and resources, and we have to allocate (laughs) that to different adaptive problems. And so
0: at every moment- raising children, what, managing a job, getting income, and exactly. you know, all those things, right?
1: All those things, even maintaining friendships uh, and kinship or family relations. We have different adaptive problems. So at every moment, we're allocating effort to solving one or multiple adaptive problems. And so in some cases, and this is why the phrase, uh, oh, my partner takes me for granted you know, uh, uh, occurs is because people feel like, well, I've solved the problem of made selection and made attraction. Now I can devote all my energy to other adaptive problems. But for successful long-term mateships, you need to continue to devote energy and effort to uh, attracting your partner. Otherwise your partner will become bored and dissatisfied and perhaps seeking love in the arms of someone
0: else. <laughs> Yeah. There's hazards out there. There's real, there's real hazards out there. Um, So I'm thinking about uh, someone I know who uh, a man who had focused on handling the adaptive problems of his career before spending time looking for a mate. What do you think of that strategy around like Okay, first, I'm going to get this part of my life organized, and then I'm going to look at uh, mating as a strategy versus like, oh, these are happening simultaneously, and I'm going to move forward as they uh, unfold in my life.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, and, you know, y- you could say, I mean, there, there, there are many roads that lead to wrong, you know, uh, and, so, and, and so a strategy that works for some might not necessarily work for others, uh, but... In my personal life, I've always done both. So uh, always attended to my career, but also had mating relationships. And one of the things, one of the reasons I think that's critical is because you find out, you know, you can't at age 17 know who the perfect person is for you or who you would make a good mate with. And so I think some mating experience is extremely valuable in discovering, you know, who is compatible with you, who's not compatible with you. Um, And that's gonna change, you know, uh, over time. And so someone who might be the perfect high school sweetheart is not gonna be the perfect, you know, uh, person when you're in college or when you're in the middle of your career. Um, and And so I guess if I were to offer any advice, I would say do both simultaneously. And I think it's men who make this mistake uh, of uh, of your 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 friend who you say well i'm going to focus all my energy on my career and if i'm successful then all the mating stuff will take care of itself and i think that i think that's a mistake
0: i'm thinking about a couple other things here and one of them is religion a little bit because i think religion in some way and i'm thinking about marital vows and that that classic vow in sickness and in health you know, and that somehow with mate switching or mate rejection or, or things that could come up as a mate value drops um, for whatever reason. Maybe there's a depression, a lost job, uh, some kind of personal crisis that can be so hard on a couple or a partnership. So if reproductive value is nestled under mate value, what is mate value nestled under and and is religion or spirituality the thing that should be ideally helping us with there's no perfect mate value it's changing its dynamic we're all imperfect we don't always always match like how do we as humans make our way through the fact that we're biologically evolved to perceive rather quickly and smell and taste and feel and know someone's mate value how, how do we make our way through that in, a, oh, I'd say, a good way uh, with integrity instead of just being, say, selfish in our genetic goal?
1: So genes are selfish, but individuals are not necessarily selfish. So we have a large collection of adaptations that are designed for cooperation, designed for altruism, even designed for self-sacrifice. You know, and part of the key to finding a long-term mate is um, what's called welfare trade-off ratio. It, it basically is the degree to which I value my mate uh, relative to how much I value myself. And this gets back to your point about the religious dictums uh, of uh, you know and se- sickness and health and so forth. So uh, one of the keys of long-term mateship is valuing your partner's welfare more than your own even. Okay, at least as much. So so you can think of welfare trade-off ratios as being selfishly skewed. So if you're a narcissist, you value yourself more than anybody else in the world, uh, or altruistically skewed, you value your partner. And one of the cool things about successful long-term mating is when both partners place a high welfare trade-off ratio on the other, that is they both both feel lucky to be with that other person. and are willing to make sacrifices for that other person. I'm willing to give up my favorite tennis um, match because uh, my partner's sick, and I want to I want to give get some chicken soup for her or wh- or whatever. Uh, right. So again, this gets back to that issue. At every moment, we're making these decisions, you know, of what actions to, to engage in, what problems to solve, and maintaining successful long-term mateships requires that good uh, range of welfare trade-off ratios. One other thing I would say, you brought up the issue of religion. I think it's, uh, there are two things to say about that, at least two things, but I'll mention two. Okay, one is that morality, and this is another key point that you were bringing up, I think is critical. And I think we have evolved adaptations for morality, adaptations to cooperate, adaptations not to harm other people, adaptations to be fair. Uh, And so I think we have evolved moral psychology, evolved moral inclinations, except for psychopaths, who don't. And a lot of religious um, principles really embody these key aspects of our evolved morality. And so I don't see religion and our evolved morality as two separate things. I think they're part of the same thing. You know, thou shalt not kill. Well, killing is inflicting a massive harm on someone. If you're in a pair-bonded couple, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, that, that is, divert, reproductive, relevant resources to someone outside of the pair bond. And so I think many components, this is actually a topic I'm working on right now, is uh, sexual morality. Uh, many aspects of our morality are embedded within almost all of, I would say, all of the major religions. Religion and, and our morality are not two separate things they're part of the same system or same psychology, at least in part. A second thing I would say is successful mating is almost invariably, almost invariably requires beings having similar religious values. If you are not well matched on religiosity, this also applies to political orientation and, and values in particular, if you're not well matched, then you're going to have conflicts.
0: So when social conflict comes into the mating, domain it makes mating success harder.
1: I would say conflict within couples. So because couples, you know, they they join their lives and are making joint decisions about allocating effort to different adaptive problems. And if you have fundamental disagreements about religiosity uh, and political orientation, then you're gonna there's gonna be conflict within the couple. And any kind of conflict th- that means you have to devote effort and energy to dealing with the conflict rather than using that energy and effort to more beneficial means. And so, you know, ideally what you want, I mean, all all couples have conflict and that's probably what my new book's about. It's all the ways in which couples get into conflict and how to deal with them. Uh, But how do you you deal with them is a key issue there. How do you cope with conflicts that people and couples invariably get into?
0: Yeah. And as we know from the news every day that those conflicts can be very serious. And have very serious consequences. So I'm I'm kind of looking at the juxtaposition of, okay, so we have morality, evolved morality, which religion is indicating that, yeah, that's part of an adaptive strategy we have. And yet we know that that morality breaks down, particularly under intense emotions like sexual jealousy and, and mating. And so as kind of a final you know, we can't quite uh, talk about it all today. I'm sure we could, I would love to talk to you for two more hours and keep you know picking your brain and going deeper into these dynamics that we have, but, you know, making peace with the complex feelings that we have and in our human nature, I think is, is probably my primary goal. You know, how how do I understand my human nature and my experience, you know, the, the conflicts I have and, and the joys I have in, in my family, um, my own personal feelings, what I think and what I feel about myself and, and then how I feel about the world. So, you know, when it comes to this issue of, of mating and the, the intensity of, of emotions and, and desire and drives, what's your kind of just like last thoughts on that before we close up shop today on terms of just helping people get more comfortable with their, with their mating nature?
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess I would say and that's, that's a big question, and we could devote at least a couple hours to talking about it, but I'll just say a couple things before we end. One is, uh, I mean, it is uh, fascinating to be in a position to uncover aspects of our human nature, in this case, our mating nature. And so I've been very fortunate and privileged to be able to devote my life to studying these things. I think that the knowledge can be used for beneficial purposes. And that's actually why I wrote my my uh, most recent book, When Men Behave Badly, uh, looking at sexual harassment, sexual assault, and so forth. I think this is one of the major problems uh, and that a deep understanding of our human nature and of our mating psychology can help us solve some of these problems, uh, both in our personal lives and in society. So, so for example, I have uh, uh, an evolutionary recipe in the new book, a 14-point evolutionary recipe for su- for a successful pair bond. Uh, I have a set of recommendations for how to reduce sexual harassment in the workplace, mm-hmm. a set of recommendations for how to identify perpetrators of sexual coercion, uh, even a set of recommendations on how to draft laws around stalking and sexual harassment uh, and, and rape uh, that can reduce these uh, harms that are caused in part by our evolved sexual psychology. And so uh, so for those who are interested in those, uh, those elements, I would recommend my new book on sexual conflict. Uh, but I think that everybody can benefit from a deeper understanding of our human nature with the recognition that we have this complex collection of psychological adaptations and that we can pick and choose which ones we decide to activate And which ones we want to keep quiescent or or suppressed or non-activated. And so knowledge of what those mechanisms are and the social and environmental cues that trigger their activation can give us tools to control our own behavior in positive ways and the behavior of other people.
0: I think that's great and worthy, and I can't help but think about young people right now because I know that growing up is such a hard thing. Is there anybody you know who's doing really good work with young women and men around educating human sexuality that's, that's based in a not a simple you know, religious morality of right and wrong, but a deep understanding of human nature as you, as you speak of?
1: Yeah, well, there are these principles that I talk about in my books from evolutionary psychology are increasingly being applied to things like um, psychotherapy, uh, couples therapy, uh, using knowledge of jealousy, for example, to say, hey, look, when you feel jealous, so many couples come in and they say, my partner is irrationally jealous. Well, um, is there a mate value discrepancy? Is the, Are there mate poachers? Is the partner giving cues to infidelity or affection? You know, looking at, uh, you know, as you say, looking under the hood gives people insight that they can use for beneficial purposes. So, uh, so I can't identify a specific person uh, on this. Uh, Mike Abrams is one who's dealing with uh, this couples therapy and applying. I co-wrote a paper with him, but there are others who are applying this fundamental knowledge to improve the human condition, and I think more of it needs to be done.
0: I fully agree with that. And I'm so grateful, um, not only that you came on the show to just begin a conversation around this very complex topic, but that you have dedicated the last 40 years of your life to the subject. And you're making a really serious contribution to how we understand our human nature. So thank you for that, especially.
1: Well, well, thank you, Uh, Jeffrey. It's been a delight to chat with you and you know, hopefully, your, your listeners will enjoy uh, this and use the information for beneficial purposes as well.
0: And they can find you at uh, davidbus.com, right? You do public talks, public yeah. lectures, you have all your books listed there.
1: Yeah. So, my, my website, yeah, it's davidbus.com, just my name with no spaces. If you Google my name, you'll, uh, that'll be the first thing that'll come up. And on the website, I have links to all of my books as well as the science, links to scientific articles. Uh, which can be downloaded for free, uh, and then also links to other, other useful information. Like we have a, with a former graduate student, Josh Duntley, who's now a professor, we developed a website to help victims of stalking. Uh, so it's called stalkinghelp.org. So you can find that on our website as well. So I would say, yeah, go to my website, davidbus.com, and that provides uh, access to all the information.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work, helping people make peace with their human nature, Go to how humans